Soft Pass, episode one. Welcome to Soft Pass, hosted by John Michaels, a 30-year veteran tour manager and sound engineer for some of entertainment's most well-known touring acts. Sit down with songwriters, musicians, producers, managers, lawyers, and touring professionals. Talk about what really goes on behind the scenes, in the studios, offices, and on the road in the entertainment industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Soft Pass, coming to you uh, this one time from Swampers Bar and Grill here in Florence, Alabama. I'm your host, John Michaels, and I just want to take a quick moment here to explain the premise of the show and to introduce my co-host. Soft Pass is actually an industry term. When tours go out on the road, the touring personnel will have hard laminates that they wear to set them apart from the local crew. And the local bands, the local drivers, the photographers, whatever, will get a sticky Soft Pass, which is a cloth one-day pass for that event. People that you'd see with these would typically be photographers, family and friends of the band, stagehands, local working crew, opening acts, stuff like that. And a soft pass kind of reflects what we're doing with the show. John Gifford and I live on the backside of the business. He's in the studio over there at Fame on the creative side, working with the artists and songwriters and hired guns. I'm over on the performance side, touring with all the bands and making the myths on the road. Now that I say that, it kind of sounds like I'm getting John's leftovers, but I guess that's another conversation. The point being, we've been doing this a long time. John and I both know a good amount of notable people. Some of them are good friends. Some are just good working buddies or touring friends. When we sit down at the catering table across from a Joe Perry or an Adam Duritz or something, we talk about things that are common to all of us. We talk about the tour or the recording session or the gear music in like a clinical sense. And sometimes we talk about putting in French drains or what material to buy at Home Depot that would best soundproof your garage. I just had one of those put into my parents' house a couple months ago. (laughs) (laughs) French drain. Yeah. So it just runs the gamut of stuff. And the purpose of the show is to sit down with all of our friends and have those conversations that usually only happen backstage or on the tour bus and just give you a peek kind of into that world. We're going to talk about things that happen on tour during recording sessions. We'll talk about life on a tour bus, life in the clubs, at the airports, in the cabs and transportation vehicles that we take all the time. We'll hear stories of amazing encounters, and we'll go over the shame and glory of choosing to work in this business and all the crazy things that happen. But without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friend, John Gifford. John's a very talented uh, engineer and producer over at Fame Studios, and you have some background in the live world, and I have a little background in the studio world, which makes it easier for us to sit down together without a lot of violence. (laughs) (laughs) Ultra-violence. Yeah, classically, there's this uh, hang-up between live personnel and studio personnel. It's the difference between playing basketball and golf. The ball still needs to go in the hole, but it's a whole different method and machine to get it there. So I'm just curious, why did you choose to go to that side of the field, the studio side? I helped with like one show at UNA when I was a student over there. The show ended, it was Lady Annabellum 
after it was done, we spent four hours breaking down the sound, the lights, the stage. We loaded up two like diesel trucks and then all the like sound engineers, they had another uh, gig they had to get to at two in the morning. They left and had a four and a half hour drive. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. so yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I live two miles from the studio. It takes me six minutes to get there. And I sleep in my own bed every night. <laughs> Can't argue with that. No, it's certainly more attractive. Oh, yeah. The other voice that you're hearing is our guest on our very first show. I'm so happy that you're here and able to do this with us. Really proud to have you as our first guest. I'm proud to be here. It's really cool that we can do this at this place. We'll talk about some of that history in a bit, but please welcome to the show, North Alabama troubadour musician from such bands as Brother Kane and Atlanta Rhythm Section and the Dave Anderson Project, Dave Anderson. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. <laughs> and we're actually taping this live from the Swampers Bar and Grill. Well, not actually in the bar because there's a, a game going on and it's pretty loud in there. Alabama versus LSU. The LSU game is over. Game of the year. It's on in here, too. <laughs> I'm just looking over once every 30 seconds. This place was obviously named after the group of musicians who kind of made the place where John works famous to some extent, right? Totally, totally. And you come out here, as you do every week, play these local shows. Yeah. Dave's a big musician. He's been in the industry, what, over 30 years, right? Yeah, I guess so. More than that, for sure. I just wanted to get away with 30 years sounded pretty good. That's about <laughs> right. He's one of these rare people. I've known some of them in my life that they just they have to play. Is that what drives you to do this? Because you're doing like three or four solo gigs a week. Well, I don't know what else I would do. <laughs> I don't have any other job skills. <laughs> That's it. I tell that to myself every day. It's like, <laughs> if I didn't do this anymore, what would I do? Right. Speaking of that, when did you know, because every one of us that is in this for life now, there was a certain point in time where we were doing music, whatever it was for us. For me, I was doing front of house sound and learning my chops as I was had a daytime job at a radio station. And I'm sure people deliver pizzas and work other part-time jobs as they're doing music. So when did you know this is something I'm going to start focusing everything on? It was since I could crawl. Really? My dad was a drummer, never played professionally because in his generation, just there were not opportunities. It was before the Beatles when he played drums in the 50s and he had a great career as a systems analyst for my comm and control data. But uh, I watched him play. My sister would be helping my mom fold laundry, and I'd be watching him play and playing my toy guitar. So, I mean, it was just something that I was going to do. I mean, I had a couple signpost moments growing up that, that said, this is exactly what I'm going to do. But it was never a question. That's always what I was going to do. So there were times where you were like, look, I, you know, GM is offering me this job. It's got full benefits. I'm going to get paid this much amount of money, but I really, I have to cut back on my guitar playing. Did you have those crossroads where you're like, I got to? No, I never had a real job, ever. <laughs> I honestly have never had a real job. He's <laughs> so a real never. musician. I worked at Tommy Shepard's guitar store for about six months, probably around 1989 or 90, and I didn't sell one guitar. I sold strings. And, so, and, <laughs> and he's like, I love you, Dave, but you're just not cut out for this. So that was my own. That's a, and that's not even a real job because it's a music store. Right. So I don't think it even counts. <laughs> nah. Let's play this game. You share the name with a Hawkwind musician. Oh, there was a David Anderson Hawkwind? The, yes. Oh, wow, Hawkwind. The, <laughs> the owner of Famous Dave's Barbecue Chain. Yes, I knew that. The Baron of Ipswich. The Baron of Ipswich? I thought it was Lipschitz. Lipschitz? <laughs> 
<laughs> the, yeah. A wide receiver for the Denver Broncos. That one I've seen. A governor, a judge, and two bishops. So the question is, how do you set yourself apart from all these other Dave Andersons? Is it the hair? I think I'm just a little bit more of an idiot than all those people. The hair, I guess. It's you know, having a generic name is definitely not an easy thing. There's a governor and a judge here, so don't sell yourself too short. Right. <laughs> yeah. You played with Brother Kane for the last two albums. Mm-hmm. When did you start touring with them? Ninety three. They finished their tour off the first album. It's odd because my good friend Glenn Maxey left the band, and we grew up in garage bands in high school. I didn't really take his place because Roman, who played guitar, moved to bass, and I took his place. So it was right after they finished the tour on the first album, which was late 94. And then before that, you were in local bands around here. We actually met a long, long time ago in in a local Huntsville. Oh, yeah. When did you start really playing out? It had to have been before band in high school, Oh, yeah. I had garage bands since fifth grade. We had a band that played Smoke on the Water instrumental at a fifth grade talent contest at Weatherly School. And my parents showed up with their cassette deck with two mics and recorded it. And it's so funny because it's the most asinine sounding shit you've ever heard. <laughs> the sound of the applause at the end. Because, you know, this is a bunch, it's the whole elementary school there and they've never seen their friends with electric guitars. And it didn't matter how bad we were, they were just so excited. Just like anybody, and I remember reading a book where Bono said, the first time that our band played, it was probably the worst sound ever, but it was so exciting. Because oh, when yeah. there's more than one person playing the loud instruments, it's exciting. It just is. When you can feel it pressing in on you and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I know you guys have dealt with it. I'll never forget the first time I ever heard 10,000, 10 to 20,000 people scream all at the same time. I mean, you've heard that. John, maybe you've heard that. Well, you've seen shows, right? I saw NSYNC when I was 14. Nice. And that many women yelling inside a Coliseum, yeah. You don't get away from that sound. You remember it for the rest Damn, of your I'm life. Damn, I'm so much older than y'all because my first experience with that was Elvis. You, <laughs> are you kidding me? No. 75, I was uh, eight years old. You saw Elvis at eight. Yes, yes. Your dad and mom my took My mom you? and dad bought tickets. I, they put me in a leisure suit. We brought binoculars. <laughs> we went and saw them. And it was a leisure suit. When the lights went down and, and they'd started 2001 Space Oddity, <laughs> Odyssey and all the flash bulbs, man, it was absolutely incredible. Just that, you know, same with insane. Doesn't matter who you're seeing. When you feel that energy in a room and people go nuts, that's pretty big. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really big. I'm so jealous of you right now. You got to see the king. <laughs> you know, I wait when people, we have these conversations, I always wait and go, yeah, okay. <laughs> Elvis. I think the only thing that could maybe beat that is the Beatles, but that's debatable too. It's totally different because the Beatles, obviously one of the greatest bands of all time. Sure. Elvis is the greatest artist of all time, in my opinion. And it was a real concert because you could hear him. Because the Beatles concerts, apparently, it was just they were up there for 20 minutes shaking their bums and nobody could hear him. And, and we'd been listening to um, Live from Aloha album. So, I mean, I knew basically his 70s show. Was he giving the scarves out? Oh, and yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Ladies fanning, <laughs> all that stuff. It was great. It's funny because my wife, years and years later, we found out that we were at the same show. What? Really? Yeah. That's uncanny. Mm-hmm. Was it local or was it? Yeah, it was Huntsville. Okay. It was one of the first right. shows at the VBC. It was VBCC then. Right. That's amazing that you were able to experience that at such a young age. It's life-changing. Totally life-changing. 
first time I ever saw you perform was at the BBC. It was opening for, uh, oh man, my mind just went coming. ZZ Top. You were there with your grandmother, yeah, right? ZZ Top. Yeah, it's at my grandmother. Yes, you told me ZZ that. Top. Man, she loved you too. It That's was great. How yeah. come no one ever brings up the fact that the two guys that have beards are not named Frank Beard? It is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk about this a little bit. You toured with Brother Cade with Van Halen, mm-hmm. Aerosmith, Robert Plant, Skinnerd, Candlebox. Let's talk about Candlebox. They probably don't have any money to sue us. No, uh, they don't. Um, <laughs> we did a lot of shows with Candlebox. Um, Isn't Peter Klett the guitarist? Or what? Yes, Peter Klett. The best story I have about Peter is uh, we did a lot of shows together, and Roman, our bass player, and Peter and I would kind of gravitate towards drinking when everybody was down for the count. Um, we're sitting around, and just roaming out of nowhere says, Man, Pete, every night for the beginning of Far Behind, you fuck up that guitar riff. <laughs> and he said, Really? It's like Eek the Cat when they say his girlfriend's fat. Really? Um, he just was floored, and he never messed it up again. The rest of the tour, yeah, he nailed it. It's like this is their biggest hit, and it's the intro... But yeah, that's one of the first things I think about with touring with Candlebox. But they were really fun. They were a great band. and um, He knew he was screwing that up. How do you know what to correct I, I, if you didn't know? The look on his face, was that he really did not know he was screwing it up. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, I would never have said it, but Roman's got a lot more balls than that kind of say what you want to say right. at the time that most people wouldn't say it. But it worked. He fixed his riff. So Can we just... Pause for a second and talk about Atlanta Rhythm Section because I think that what you just described there is a Steve Stone moment. It, it's, yeah, it is a Steve Stone moment. For, he just wasn't there. Hey, yeah, right. Well, he doesn't screw up riffs, though, so that's... No, 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 but I'm just saying saying the thing that nobody wants to say. I made a special question, though. I have to ask you, can we just talk about how much fun Rodney Justo and Steve Stone are together in a room with conversation flying around? Like, has there ever been a, such a ridiculous uh, line of conversation going on that you just, you're just laughing so hard you couldn't even take part in the conversation? Well, the thing is, Rodney's like 10 steps ahead of everybody else in the room. He's just that <laughs> wit. I mean, he's in his mid-70s, and he's much sharper than anybody around him. <laughs> and Steve is very sharp, but he's so obtuse. Yeah, then you throw <laughs> Dean Daughtry in there, so it's... I. Yeah, it's it's. I just sit back and watch, but I end up running my mouth too much too. Most of what I say doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Some of those backstage conversations. It's funny because we do a lot of these package shows, and there's different vibes coming from the different dressing rooms for all the bands, especially when we're doing a big package show. Sure. But anytime you walk by the ARS dressing room, all you hear is just laughter and like loud, boisterous, happy kind of people. That's a good thing because. Uh, most of the bands I've toured with have been like that. It's it, we get along and, and and joke and I mean there's always always disagreements. I mean it's just there's there's no way around it. But there's always humor. I hear about bands that hate each other and I think God that's got to suck. That's really got to suck to hate each other. And you know I've heard all the stories. You know people have their own buses. Their own of course if you can afford it that's great. You know especially if I have families. But sometimes they do it just because they don't like each other. I mean, have you ever witnessed that in the studio? That's usually where it flares up. Oh, you would think it would flare up there a lot. Like where, where somebody, they're just having an argument and then it just spirals. You don't have to name names. The funniest one of those would be like these three brothers. You know, they couldn't fire each other because they're all siblings. <laughs> so one person would say something and it just seemed normal, but the other one 
could have just been looked at wrong by him and he would have blowed up and they blew up the second day we were there we ended up <laughs> not even getting started for five hours because they were in like one of the iso booths talking it out for about five hours the stuff that happened the previous day yeah yeah oh yeah God. oh that's that was that was the worst was when it was actually family members because they couldn't like do anything they just sat there knew how to push each other's buttons oh, sure. without even like saying anything so it just like it would <laughs> it, it would instant flare out. yeah yeah it just instant flare up without anything just one going, quick yeah, look yeah, by yeah. The- but usually if it's in the studio it's normally like an overdub's happening and someone it could be hour six and they're just having trouble with like one lick or whatever and then like someone else in the band just gets super irritated and impatient and they're like going back and forth and you know that's where it starts going up in the studio that can be yeah there's uh i mean there's so much psychology in the studio back when y'all used to drink a lot back in the studio and stuff like that would things flare up really fast or anything like that or we never drank that much in the studio. Okay, okay. It was always out the back door where you drank it. Towards the end of the sessions when it was like, okay, we've been doing this. We'd start having some drinks. You know, it's funny because one of my best tracks I laid down was three or four in the morning when I thought I was done and we are watching South Park because it just come out. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking scotch, Kelly Gray and Damon said, hey, we need a guitar overdub to be a texture thing on this part. And it was lead my follow on the Wishpool album, and I I went in there, and it's like in ten minutes, I had this like Edge Dave Gilmore clean delay thing through the whole song, and they were like, "Well, shit, that's what it needed." <laughs> that's one of my proudest moments in the studio. But it's like you know, I was I'd signed off yeah. like three hours before, ready for us to get out of there. <laughs> it's crazy how some of that magic happens. You're doing a one take just to get sounds or just to kind of make sure things are grooving, headphone mix or whatever, and then it ends up being the take you use. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. And then you adjusted the sounds halfway through the song, <laughs> so you have to go and be like, well, that's the take, and you have to figure out how to make the first half sound like the back half <laughs> right. and do extra editing in the back. Wow. You guys think that all we do is we just can hit a button and it fixes whatever the problem. Like you type the problem in into the computer and then hit enter and it just fixes it. I think that's the musician's take on what we do. It's like when John Lennon told Jeff Emmerich to figure it out when he did Strawberry Fields Forever. <laughs> and that, they just luckily, the pitch and the speed matched up when they put it the same together, which is, Emmerich gets a lot of credit, which he deserves so <laughs> much credit. But that one was a happy accident. Well, speaking of guitars, as you brought that up before, and I wanted to ask, you've had a lot of guitars over the years. What was the first guitar, and what is the current guitar? And then can you just touch on some notable ones that you've had in between or maybe still have? Okay, the, the, my first guitar was a garage sale uh, nylon string that I got in second grade, and I loved it. It was easy to play. Just an acoustic? Yeah, yeah. It was like a classical beater. But nylon strings are so easy to for a beginner to play it. and then I But what was the first electric though? First electric was a Sears catalog global SG copy. I got it Ooh. in uh, Christmas of 5th grade and uh, it was it was huge just having an electric guitar. And I gave it to, to my cousin a few years later and I don't know where it went, but my first real guitar that was a name brand was a Gibson Marauder. It was a really low grade Gibson. It's actually that was the one that Paul Stanley would would break. <laughs> with Kiss because they were so cheap. They just sent him, you know, a month's worth and he'd break them and they could get some more. But it was it was magic for me. I mean, they all were. Getting the first electric guitar, that Global SG copy, was really cool. Plus, uh, my guitar teacher, Smokey Stover, rest in peace, 
who was a jazz guy. He had a one of those Ampeg Geminis, which is like those all those Ampegs that have the yeah. You know what I'm talking like, about, yeah, the old ones. And it was, a, I think, a single 15. And it, to me, it was huge. I was in fifth grade. And I didn't know what the word overdrive meant, distortion. I didn't know what any of that shit meant. I just knew when I cranked it up, that's how, the way it was supposed to sound. And my parents were so freaking cool. Did you get that amp? Uh, I had it for about a year. And I finally gave it back to them, you know, begrudgingly. <laughs> that was the sound. That was the thing. Learned how to get feedback and taught myself by accident pinch harmonics, which is the Barry Bailey thing. And that guitar and that amp was that was my that was my school. What was your first distortion pedal? The Boss Overdrive. It was a rat pedal. I was about to say a rat. Yeah, <laughs> that's where I was going to put my bets. Yeah, rats. That was great. a classic. Yeah. Did you have an Echoplex? Never did. I wish. Oh. Uh, you know. So you had this SG Copy guitar, and then. When you got into your first real band that was playing out, what did you just ha- still have that guitar? Had you gone through a few? Or I'd gone through a few. I had a Tommy Shepard Strat was my first, which I'd actually bought a Squire Strat. And back when Squires had real wood, the bodies were really good. I had him bastardize it. I got a new neck, hockey stick <laughs> neck, new, new pickups. And Nick Ole, my buddy who does, he still is a guitar tech for you name it, Little Feet. The girls that backed up Prince on that last oh, right, tour, right. he still has that guitar. Has a pink flamingo on it. Um, and then you know, I I bought, I went through a lot of gear. I was always one of those guys that wouldn't spend a lot of money on gear. I've spent more money on gear now because life's too short. But I always thought that a lot of things were so overpriced, and now it's even more true. I mean, there's a diminishing returns if you buy. <laughs> yes. You spend a thousand dollars on a guitar. The more you spend, the minute you walk out of the store, it's twenty five percent less. Right, than- just like a new car. After a certain wallets, craftsmanship, ooh, yeah, pearl inlays, yeah, yeah, and it's visuals. I really didn't give a shit about all that stuff. I, I yeah, my, uh, my Les Paul doesn't even have an arch top. It's yeah, just, it's just a block of wood. So what it, is it, was, it's a Les Paul special, you know. But oh, so it's a heavy block of wood. Oh yeah, oh, does yeah. it great though. But I mean, that's the thing is, I had a session with Will uh, earlier, and he looked over, was like, "I need something with hump poggers." Picked it up and. It sounded like Will McFarland playing guitar. Sure. You know? yeah. God, what a great. You know, I learned that kind of early when I was touring with BB and CC Winans. Our tech had worked for Eric Johnson. Oh, I don't know if you yeah. guys know who he is. Oh, yeah, of course. We went to see him open up for Rush, probably in 1990. That's a lot of guitar weaselry on one oh, stage right there. Oh, my God. Yeah, right? <laughs> so we're backstage and I meet Eric Johnson and he's playing a strat through a Fender Champ. And he's playing. I'm going, Sounds like Eric Johnson. <laughs> right. And that was one of my first lessons because his pedal board is like the size of Mission Control. <laughs> and it still sounded the same. And it's the fingers. I never spent a lot of money on gear, but I would try to find the next. This is back when rack gear was. I got the, the real tube, tube preamp, all these things, trying to find a sound. And older guys like Kelvin and Bill Hines, I mean, they wouldn't tell me specifically it's in your fingers, but I, I'd hear them talk and, and realize it's in their fingers. And, and when I saw that thing with Eric Johnson, and I was already playing professionally, still looking for the gear that's going to make me sound better. And that's what made me start thinking about how long I can milk a note, what part of my fingers touching the string, right? and how you, you know, it's David Gilmore. Tone and the, the interaction. I mean, I know Jock Bartley. Oh, what a great player. He needs to have some of the guitar coming back up from the monitors at him so he can get the right kind of interaction. Now, I, I'm not a guitar player. I don't know anything about it. But sure. I imagine there's some interplay between the pickups and right. the sound coming out at the guitar. Yeah. 
to make those sustained notes and such. So you guys ever had guitar players go up to the studio monitors if they're cutting in the room? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. We've even done crazy things like take an acoustic guitar and plug it into a guitar amp just because it's so hollow. And if you want to get that crazy feedback or try to like really work it, mm -hmm. acoustics are wild. Or wow. anything with a hollow body or semi-hollow body usually will resonate and sure. feedback really cool. But the other day I was sitting there recording a guy and he was trying to do one of these epic little bend things. But I made him sit there for like 25 minutes, bend the note, but as he was bending it, like rotating in front of his amp to get like an <laughs> extra little bit of woo in there or whatever yeah so, yeah that's really cool that's one of the keys is finding those sweet spots oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah but that's what's fun about it yeah with ars now you you play a les paul that you've had for a while i think i've seen you with it quite a bit it's actually a tommy shepherd custom is it the sparkle gold yeah. top yeah. yeah yeah how long has tommy shepherd been in business he's been doing it since the mid 70s okay as far as having music stores okay and i think he started building guitars I think the early 80s, and, and I could be wrong. Because when I lived there in Huntsville, there wasn't mu many music stores, so I went over to his place a couple of times. But it was about the time that you played on the Rob Aldridge album. All of a sudden, I started seeing everybody with T. Shepard guitars. Yeah. Both Robs have one, more than one. Yeah. And Billy Smart started playing one, yeah. and everybody started having them left and right. They're phenomenal. They're really great. And it's funny because some of his guitars, he puts a lot of workmanship into, like the 335 that he's been making for Rob, and they've been kind of putting on the back burner. That looks amazing. He's one of those guys that does exquisite work, but he sees the simplicity of what makes guitars good. And he's all about if somebody wants to commission something with inlays and all that stuff, he can do it. But the simplicity and the most simple route, which I think Fender kind of, Nobody's beat Fender on those kind of designs, but he gets that. And so there's a mojo to his guitars that it's a streamlined thing. Basically, if you strum it acoustically, it's going to sound good. Right, right, right. Good resonance. Yeah, yeah. Spinal tap resonance. Right. You could go have a bite and still be playing. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, I've got a few of his guitars. And it's funny because when I was doing the Black Jacket Pink Floyd thing, um, I had, he had built a sparkle stratocaster for himself like 15 years ago and i was like oh i love that guitar but you know he built it for himself right not that he slacks on his workmanship with, uh, with other people but there's a certain amount of care when you're building something for yourself and i called him i said i need a strat because i'm doing these shows i'm borrowing strats to do this david gilmore thing and he said well i fell out of love with goldie i'll sell it to you he sold it me for a stupid price and then i said i need a spare and it's funny because he had, um, like I was talking about my, my old Squire. You didn't actually need a spare. You just wanted another guitar. Well, well yeah, both. <laughs> but I did. Because I to have a spare, I wanted another Strat. I said, I'd kind of like something with the Dave Gilmore look with the black body, black pickguard, white pickups, maple neck. And he called me back. He said, come down to the shop. And this is like two hours later. And I came down there. It was done. And he had Mike Fontenot, who's a great guitar player from the Huntsville scene. I think he stopped playing out live about 10 years ago. He was, the last gig he had was Cosmic Mama, but he played with, with everybody. It's one of his old T-Shepard necks, and Tommy found one of those old Squire Strat bodies from back when they made real bodies for the Squires. Put it together, and that guitar is probably better than his gold guitar. He put it together, just had this mojo, and it's, it's my favorite Strat. It's amazing when you can find one of those luthiers that 
just know what they're doing. There's a guy in Milwaukee, Denny Rowan. He can just do magic with any guitar, and people go to him year after year. I think he does the Smashing Pumpkins guitars and oh wow, a lot of other people. But it does take a craftsman to know what they're doing. For sure. Now my acoustic guitars, Danny Davis, who's a, a NASA engineer. Have you seen? You guys seen any of his guitars? That's the first time I've ever spent more than a thousand dollars on a guitar. And he gave me a good deal, but this was like a $5,000 guitar. His guitars are like complete works of art. And, and um, I mean, his, uh, it's just incredible. Is it all pearl inlaid? And it's, stuff oh, like it's, that? Got all, it's got all the fancy stuff. All the fancy stuff. I got a super stupid deal on the, the sister 12-string that he built. He was kind enough to say that I helped sell a few guitars, so he gave me the, well, I don't know if I can say it, the free deal on the, on the 12-string, which is another... <laughs> $4,000 guitar, but you know, and I've owned some guitars with endorsements that are like, you know, I, I had a $1,500 Tacoma acoustic that was brilliant. Right, right. I don't know that I would have paid for it. But now that I have some really good guitars, it's like, well, I, I do see. You know, let's clear something up about the sponsorship or the endorsement, because I was dealing with this a little bit too with Blue this week. It's not like they do expect you to give some kind of feedback on it. I mean, I imagine you guys get gear to try out down at Fame a lot, don't you? Do they send you mics and stuff? And they do ask you, they call, they do follow-ups, and they want to know how did it play. How did, You know, I had to do reviews on the, the gear that I got from Blue when I got the endorsement. But, they, I mean, there is some something more to it than people just giving you stuff. I mean, Eddie gave you an amp, but... Yeah. It's all about the relationship you're forming with people at that point, you yeah. know? Me and my blue rep were buddies. I love talking to him on the phone, Kev. But then again, I've also formed great relationships with like JHS, Josh. He's from just south of Muscle Shoals. So, you know, formed a great relationship with him. And But I mean, you give both ways because it obviously benefits both parties and everything yeah. like that. Right. You I, know? I try to test stuff out and use it, oh, you yeah. know, to certain extremes. Like if somebody's giving me, a set of headphones. I'm I'm going to use them in as many capacities as I can. I use them right. live. I'll use them recording. I'll use them in the when I was doing radio. I would try them in radio and just you know find out what they're a good tool for. And that's why you don't really just accept anything that wants someone wants to too, because right, you have to realize from their end. Yeah, that might have been a four thousand dollar guitar, but the difference in him selling two or three guitars is a difference from him eating okay for the year or eating right. great for the sure, year you know right, sure not all the time you just don't want to accept them all that's why you're really careful with who you accept endorsements with sure because it's it's a reflection on you exactly it's, it's two ways if you're not behind it yourself then it makes some of your integrity a question and then it makes theirs right i've been in that situation too yeah there's gear we wouldn't take i mean yeah like the blue bottle for us, we have one and asked and buy it. It's one of the most amazing vocal mics I've ever used on. Yeah. I've heard people say that they're they're garbage. I've heard people praise them. I do the same thing. I do it on an individual basis. There's been some Earthworks mics that I, I thought were just fantastic, whereas some pro guys are like, "Those are garbage." You know, I think everything has its application. But then again, it's like. Uh, everything does like you know i've also had a hundred dollar akg on a tom right next to the other tom mike was fourteen hundred dollars and they sounded exactly the same so it's like yeah it's not always about the price on them that, that tom sounded really good though in the up front <laughs> all right let's talk about touring a little bit before we run out of time here when you were out with brother kane supporting those albums and they were 
Brother Kane had four top ten hits, two number ones. At rock radio, not at not at pop. Can you name them? I can name the, the number ones. All right. <laughs> Got No Shame, Full Shine On, well, and Full Shine On, uh, which Van Halen borrowed for a song later, and Lie in the Bed I Make. And I know some of the top tens were... Well, it says Got No Shame was a number two. Really? But we can let you oh, slide. I yeah, yeah. That, I don't know. I Lie in the Bed and Full Shine On, it says clinically it number one. It depends on what chart. But one of the rock charts, I know that... Got No Shame was number one. I wasn't on that record, so I don't have a dog in the fight. You're right, right. There's a number six. There's one that got up to That's number probably, six. That's um, probably uh, Hard Act to Follow. That don't satisfy me. That don't satisfy me, yep. I mean, Brother Kane was a big act for quite a few years, and you toured with some big acts. So We did really well live. We did really well at radio, and we didn't sell shit for records. We had it was. It's uh, funny how that happens. Well, I mean, basically, our A and A and R department was non-existent. Our A and R was our radio promo people. Oh, you were with Atlantic as well. No, No, we uh, (laughs) (laughs) insert label here. We were at Virgin, but Virgin America didn't have anybody that was any maverick kind of A and R department. All their acts were, you know, UK artists, and the acts that they had that were important already developed their own career, like. The Pumpkins, Billy Corgan, people that either had their underground through indie, had something, or they were established in England. They didn't break acts, but our radio promo department was our A&R department. They would listen to demos. They would listen to Work in Progress and say, that's a single, that's not a single. We had meetings with the different distribution headquarters. We'd go meet all the people that worked there. Management would buy pizza and beer. and We'd all meet each other, put faces to the names, and to no avail. Like we we had markets like Dallas, Minneapolis, markets that we that we killed. That we were all over the radio, and this is before iTunes and Napster wasn't even really. But I mean, you had to have physical copies in a store. I remember because all we had to do when we weren't doing sound check is walk around, go to record stores, and do stuff like that, and see how we're doing. Well, you had to do the radio promo too. Where you go sit and play for eight Try people. Try to sing at eight o'clock eight, in the morning. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I go to record stores, it would be just amazing that there was no product in the stores. There's always finger pointing. People said, well, the, the band's music wasn't undeniable. Well, you know, we were doing good at radio. There's always finger pointing. But the thing is, is our label could not, SEMA was the brand that did the distribution. And I still don't remember if, if they were owned by the same EMI umbrella or not, but they were different entities we couldn't get those entities to work because we didn't have executive power in the american version of virgin records the puppetry to make all those things work together i'll always wonder if we sold more records did it seem at some point they were shining you guys that's what i saw with a lot of acts that i was on the road with that had these same kind of treatments and then the album just didn't go anywhere like citizen king i think sold uh, it was like a $4 million deal, and they they did like under 100,000 records on their release. And it was the whole gamut of like, we're going to do this for you guys. You're going here. Well, you're going here. You're going to do these shows. And it all kind of happened, but the bigger plan never happened. They didn't really care enough about us to shine us. <laughs> I mean, it was not even that good. If it, Like I said, if it weren't for radio promotion, we wouldn't have done shit. Right, right. We did a lot of shows that were, you know, it's kind of like another version of Paola radio shows, like all the big. We'll play your song this many times a week for the if next If you do this show weeks, for yeah, free. Right, right. Again, had there been product in the stores, doing those free radio shows, because we played with everybody. We played with Green Day. We played with Foo Fighters, Pump, we, you name it. We played shows with all the bands that were out when we were out. And it helped us. It helped us at, at radio. But again, had there been product, 
I said, radio people loved us. We knew how to promote. We knew how to promote ourselves without being bullshitters. We liked making friends. And sometimes radio people are gross. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oddly, oddly Freed's quote that I've always loved. But uh, they're just gross. <laughs> and they're not all gross, but there are some. But, but, you know, the whole thing is just to make friends and, and just try to build relationships. Let's go back to the touring side of it a bit. Specifically, when, so when you did the Van Halen tour, just picking one of the big tours, for instance. Tell people what that's like. I mean, I know what it's like to be on the backside of an arena tour. There's a lot of stuff going on. It was monstrous for me personally because that was one of my biggest influences ever. I missed my 10-year high school reunion because I was on tour with Van Halen, which is cool. <laughs> this was a band that you idolized oh, yeah. coming up as a guitar player. When I was talking earlier about the two moments in my life, one of them was when we played in fifth grade, did Smoke in the Water. The next one was when I was a sophomore, complete geek, and played Eruption in front of the pep rally at my high school, which is a high school of about <laughs> 2,000 people. That's so awesome. We, we toured with Van Halen, and it was like the, one of the last shows we did after two months. I kept wanting to tell Eddie the story, and he came to our dressing room, and the guy said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I told him, and he just like gave me a big hug and said, Dave, that's the coolest story I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be able to, to be there and, and hang out with him, me watch him from the side of the stage, and then me watch, watch him watch me from the side of the stage. Watching him is one thing, but then That's when weird. you're doing your part of the show and you turn and you see him. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, how do you keep a composure at that point? You know, <laughs> just, you, you know you're playing, you're doing your solo, and you just happen to look to the, to the left, and, and there's Eddie. And what do you do? It was, I'd already met him. So there was already a rapport. So if it had been the first show that we did with him and I hadn't met him, I would have freaked out. <laughs> but he'd already hung out with us and been really friendly. So it was just like, hey, there's Ed. But, right. then, but I did still have a pitch myself moment and go, yeah, that's Ed. That's not just Ed. That's Eddie freaking Van Halen. Did those guys ever come out on the stage with you? at like the, Because back, let me explain something. Back in those days, touring was a bit different. Nowadays, bands will take each other out for dinner to say how much we've enjoyed touring with you. But back then, if you really liked a band, you would do what we called the tour prank to them. And, and the more you liked them, the, the nastier the tour prank seemed to be sometimes. Right, right. Was there any kind of that friendly ribbing, that talking shit kind of? Not with Van Halen, but Candlebox, we had silly string each other at the last Right, time. right, stuff like that. It wasn't a prank, but with the Van Halen thing... And I'm always kind of conservative on interviews and stuff, but I think I can speak frankly on this one. So it was weird because the last, second to last show we did in Fresno, I'm sitting there with Damon in our dressing room, and their tour manager says, the brothers want to talk to you, Eddie and Alex. So they bring us in. We're talking to Eddie and Alex, and Alex, he didn't speak much, but he said, we're giving you an extra 20 minutes and each of you 1500 bucks personally for tonight, just as a thank you for the tour. Tour manager comes back in and says, Y'all sit tight, and then here comes Sammy and Mike, Anthony, who, that's a whole other set of stories on the road. <laughs> um, and it was Sammy's birthday, so they bring in a stripper. And it's, <laughs> it's Damon, me, and Van Halen. And it's a stripper there for Sammy's birthday. <laughs> and I did easily the geekiest thing I could ever do, because she got right in front of me. I thought she was kind of nasty. Right. But she got right in front of me, I just went, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other guys looked at me like I was Just, a complete goober. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> There's no getting cool after that. Be sitting there going, okay, these are people that I was, am, you know, a fan of, and I'm sharing this moment with them at the end of the tour. Yeah. It's is, really weird. It, those are the kind of moments that 
we all get to experience as being working professionals in this business. John, have you ever had one of those crazy moments where you're counting how many singles you have in your wallet and then you turn around and, you know, Clive Davis is there or something? Oh, I've definitely had the moments where it's like, oh, wow, I have $2 to my name, but then somehow the 10-day album will book out. It's like, ah, I got money in my wallet. I think what he's saying, though, is like the people that show up there. Because, I mean, I've seen pictures of you guys with like Bono and, I mean, Steven Tyler. I mean, you've you've had a lot of people come through there. Earlier, was it this year or last year? I walked out from up front, and it was like, boom, Gallagher was standing there. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, (laughs) yeah. And I was just. You're like looking for plastic right away. Like, I don't get starstruck, but I saw him, and I just went, whoa, this is cool. (laughs) And he was like, I'm here. That's awesome. He didn't even want to see the studio or anything. He just, he was performing in Huntsville later that night. He just kind of came in because the guy that, he has a band that travels with him. The guy wanted to come check out our studio because he heard we had a Neve and everything. And oh, yeah. he was just kind of more like looking at us clocks, like, all right, come on, let's go, you know. So, but what about some of the superstars? You don't have to name names, but for me personally, I've met so many famous people. Like, I've jammed on stage at Soundcheck with Whitney Houston, who was super nice. Oh, wow. You don't have to name names, but you've had, so many superstars, especially the last five years with the reemergence with the documentary and, and getting the respect. Oh, totally. Are they mostly as cool as, because in my experiences, most of the famous people are cool. Very few of them are dicks. They're mostly cool, right? I'm in a weird situation because I feel like we get kind of people in their best. We had a really big artist come in. Their assistant and their security guard was like, you're going to get the special person to this because they don't get to be, you know, late teenager, early 20s version of themselves in the studios with all their friends create music. They're too busy having to play the role of them every day, you know, right. calling in PAs two weeks later, having to cuss people out because things aren't getting done. Sure. Stuff they have to do. Yeah, their daughter's sick in New York, but they have to go to L.A. for some interview, you know, stuff like that. But when they come in there, they're usually very respectful and know where they are, love the history. I've had multiple, like, huge artists, like, start crying when they're in there just because they're feeling it. And normally, if someone gets to a certain level, I notice they're kind of humble usually. Or they're on the track of what a record label's making them do. You know, you can tell they should be able to do whatever they're doing, but you can tell they're just going by the calendar and their book and they're just riding the train. Usually it's the guitarist in the group or someone like that that you got to kind of fluff up. Or it's usually someone in the one person in the group, not necessarily the artist themselves. You just got to kind of like hold them and tell them they did a good job and stuff like that. Usually the artists, when they come in, are really nice, and they're very respectful. They love meeting, like, the halls, especially when Rick was alive. They yeah. they loved that. But I will say this. We had Greg Allman in there recording, and he's in there. It's like day two or three recording, and Rick pulls him up to his office and pitches him songs for an hour and a half, you know? <laughs> but but the, he loved the fact that he walked back down and kind of shook his head. It was like, man, he's still the same person, you yeah. know? So it's just like, yeah, yeah so a lot of people love coming to the fame just for that kind of reason there. So They're disarmed by the history. Right, 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 yeah. right. Totally. It's, it's hard not to be humble when you walk sure. in that place. Oh, I've had a couple of men, I wouldn't even say they were dicks or anything, but... The, you get a little smugness out of some, but it's usually someone who had like one, maybe two hits 25, 30 years ago or something. And 
you don't know who their name is off bat or something. So they already have a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, about yeah. That. Well, when I introduce myself, I said, hi, my name's John. You know, if they introduce themselves, I'm like, oh, they're going to be kind of cool. But if they're just like, oh, nice to meet you. It's like, oh, right. I'm not going to have many conversations with this person today. Yeah. It's yeah. a day at work. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is one of the cool things about that studio is it, it is everybody I've met there has been totally down to earth real. Right. My favorite story, and I've, I mean, I've heard a million stories like we all have, but this is a more recent one. And I can't remember if you were there yet. I think you were. You had to have been there. It was when police played at Bonnaroo, and they came by. That was the summer before I started there. Yeah. And was it Andy Summers and Sting? Yeah. What happened was it was a James LeBlanc demo session. Right. Shrigley and Rick were in like the studio, and Mrs. Hall was out front. And Andy and Sting come in, and they didn't actually, like, Sting didn't say anything. Because if any, this is way before documentary came out. This is 2009. There weren't as many tours. There wasn't tours, really. I mean, they'd show, like, a group of, like, 30 Belgian people around. But that was really about it then. But that smelled great. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Smelled like waffles. No, joking. Yeah, but if someone has an accent, she'd usually at least like show them some time, talk to them for a little bit. But Andy walks up and was like, hey, you mind if we like take a tour and look around? It's a museum, right? She's like, no, it's a working studio in their session, but you can look at the pictures. And he was like, oh, this is still a working studio. Walked over to Sting and was like, yeah, they're still working here. And Sting was like, oh, they walked out the door. She wouldn't have known, but the next day she opened up the newspaper and their picture was in the newspaper because they had been at Bonnaroo like the day before that. So said, oh, those are the guys that came to the studio. I know them, young gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Hall. That's great. I got a question for you. You had mentioned like your dad played drums and then it's you. How was it having a son, Stone? He's getting into music. He's on a plane today on the way to Europe. That's awesome. That's awesome. It was really cool because... He took an interest in music really at a young age, but he he didn't want me to teach him very much. And there's sometimes cats in the cradle. I was going to teach him something happened, and I wasn't there. So I've got all the guilt issues that any musician parent has. You know, I've got all those. But um, he really taught himself. Was there a part of you that was like, I'm excited he's playing music? Oh, God, yes. But there's another part that's like, How's he going to feed himself? (laughs) Yes. To both of those questions. Both of them. You know, because uh, I I went for one year to UNA college, and and I basically flunked out because my buddies that had moved away to South Carolina when I was in high school, we all went to UNA to form a band together. When we realized that's all we were doing, I ended up getting a gig at Disney World a month after I flunked out of UNA, so I dodged that bullet. All of a sudden, I was... Doing great, my parents. Yeah. But, you know, I was lucky. I'll say that I worked very hard for everything I've done, but I, I got some lucky breaks here and there. Watching Stone learn, I mean, I, oh, there was never a question of his ability because he's, he's got that thing. He's totally got that thing. And uh, he's got a personality that, that's good, definitely smarter and wittier than me. He's good with that whole part of it, the hang. And he's a great musician. But I worry about making a living. At his age, I wasn't really making a living yet. I was making a little bit more than because I just, I had... There's a lot more gigging going around back in my, and, and there wasn't as many bands playing that made as much money. It's more of a third world country now. You make shit or you make a lot of money. There's not much in between. So he doesn't have the opportunities I had, but he, I mean, he's doing the thing with Rob. They're building that and getting some good news lately that's, that's building that further. And him, the fact that somebody who knew somebody liked his playing said, come do this tour to Europe. 
um, that he's doing right now. I'm like, hell yeah. Did you give him any tips for going to Europe? <laughs> uh, what do you pass on to him? That- I just said, just learn those songs, man. <laughs> Make sure you know the songs. Stay away from this country, but yeah. <laughs> or this city. <laughs> if you go to France, they're going to hate you. Son, but- if you see red lights, go the other way. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah, I'm, I'm really happy for him. And, and, and the fact that, that he's getting those kind of opportunities, I think it's, it's great. I hope that he is lucky enough, as I've been, to not have to give it up. He's got day gigs that he does because, again, there's not as much opportunities to make money doing it. He seems to do a really great job of juggling that part of his life and the music part. It's fun to watch it, and it's so cool how many times people come up to me and compliment him as a player and a person. My favorite thing ever happened recently because he's had issues with nepotism, and he's overthought so much, oh, I'm Dave Anderson's son, which, you know, in the big picture doesn't mean shit, but around here locally, it does. And he's had problems with it. And does he feel like there's shoes he has to fill? Or I think so. And I never, th- I don't think anybody else feels that way as much as he does. Especially not I, me. I think that's the way it is with with that. But what's awesome, and it happened just a couple months ago when I played at Cypress Moon, did a show for um, Tanya Holly. Hannah Aldridge was on the show. All the artists were planning our encore song. We hadn't have a, had a chance to meet. You know, I don't. We don't know each other. She didn't know who I was. And somehow Stone came up, and she said, you work with Stone Anderson? And I said, that's my son. She said, oh, really? And I said, Stone, now I'm Stone Anderson's dad. And you're not Dave Anderson's son. And I love it. I think that's totally cool. Finally flipped. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of, of those kind of first things, did you go to your son's first show? I did. That was in Birmingham. I, and I have not gone to nearly as many of his shows as I should. Part of the times because I'm gigging when he is. Right, right. And you know, well, how cool is that though? In, oh, in some I, yeah, sense, he was like you know? 15, and it was in Birmingham, and he he played with his buddy, and we also recorded some of his stuff. Was it at the Nick? No, it was it was oh, like at this like this good. barbecue place where they were having like a high school age kids doing like a talent show thing. They were way better than all the other people. Was he better than you when you were in your talent show? Yeah, but I was in fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, John? Do you remember your first session, your first real session? Now, my first session was recording my own band, and it was in college. And I was in this prog band for about four years, and the drummer was super OCD. I mean, to the point where he'd break, like, handles off, like, his doors of his cars from checking the locks. I mean, super OCD. (laughs) We were in a band four years together, never actually played a gig, but... I got him to take his drum set out of his house. He was freaked out. And everything was like perfect Tama. Everything was just pristine. And the guitarist was helping him set up the rack or whatever. And he goes to do a clamp. Well, the clamp broke. And the drummer like mine just like <laughs> melted. And he couldn't look. And then he started questioning everything about life. I mean, this is a dude that would like learn dream theater songs like Oh, verbatim wow. so, you know oh, wow. you I mean, gotta be ocd to be able to do yeah, that. yeah 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 just he was so, such a good drummer so we ended up having to scrap using his drum set because he was just too freaked out to use it after that i ended up making a d on the project because i could only because i was in the studio i had no other drummer so oh, you were doing a recording session for a college project oh, yeah yeah okay. yeah, yeah. I had to use like electronic drums at that point, and wow. I used a two mix. The professor didn't like the fact that I just had a stereo two mix of drums and not everything mic'd. Wow. First actual session that I got paid to do 
was a demo session for Spooner Oldham. So it was like Spooner, David Hood, Kelvin, Holly, just all these. Talk about trial by fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These guys aren't like, it's not like a bigger city where they have a 10 to 1, then they have to get across town for their like 2 to 5. It's like, you know, David Hood wants to take his poodles out on the boat. And you're just like, yes, absolutely. No problem. It's just like, yes, sir, yes, sir. I'm trying as hard as I could. And they're like trying to tell me to everything's cool. It's laid back, but I'm like sweating bullets. And then we go, uh, we have a meet in three place, two buildings down. And we go over and we eat like Garden Gate and we're all tired and they sit there and have me cut the lights down and they want me to mix. I'm like, wow, I'm having to mix a song now. I don't even know how to mix. And I'm sitting here trying. I'm sweating bullets. I look over wow. and they're all passed out. <laughs> like control. Like food like, comas? Yeah, food comas. And I'm sitting here like sweating bullets, like so worried that they're going to hate it and all this. I look over and they're all like... <sighs> <laughs> that's awesome man so they i'm sure they liked it oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it was demos you know <laughs> i want to talk about my first not my first uh mixing experience but one of my first mixing experiences this is the 1990 i think 90 91 somewhere in there i was working for a local sound company and they had just given me um I was under 18. I was 16. So they got one of the club owners to agree to let me work there, underage. I was working my first... What was the club? I have to ask. The club, it was called the Unicorn in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's not there anymore. Okay, okay, yeah. It's uh, basically somebody's basement. Uh, It was like the tip top, but with no windows. Right. (laughs) Wow. So it was like that. And it was classically known for having a lot of punk, hardcore, hard rock bands, you know, that kind of... It was one of those clubs, right. you know. You didn't you see it like a Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell type show there. It was a lot of heavier bands, so that's where I cut my teeth. And luckily, a good friend of mine who we'll call Mister Magic uh, just happened to record a lot of the shows in Milwaukee, the club shows. He was a, a friend of mine, a radio DJ, and so I was actually able to go back, call him up, and and ask him. Okay, was that a name that you just gave him, or you've always I, called I just, him, or no, did he call I just, himself? Just gave him that name okay, because okay, I, I don't want anybody to know who the guy is. Okay. But he, if we, and I'm sure I'll need him again. Hey, I need a, a copy of, you know, this band or whatever, and he'll give it to me. But he actually had this recording, and I couldn't believe it. This is from one of the first weeks that I was working there, and I just want to play just a little clip of this so you can hear this just terrible guitar solo from this band that I did sound for here. That's, that sounds like somebody I've heard before. That's, it sounds like somebody's playing in a garage is what it sounds like. But just for... Well, we are listening to it from your iPhone going through these headphones and this mic. So it's... That's the about the sound of it. Uh, it was recorded on a Walkman, uh, you know, with the two microphones. It was a oh, ca- yeah. cassette tape, you know. So you can hear a little bit of the jump in there. But and I'm sitting there mixing this band or trying to do what I can do, just thinking, man, these guys are just awful and probably never going to make it at all in this business and you know you have to start somewhere sometime and i learned a valuable lesson because let's just back that up to the end of that solo again and listen to who that actually was oh 
Were you working no, with Butch Vig? So this is the story. I'm going to cut this clip. Little side note. We were talking about tone is in the fingertips earlier. That bend he was doing in the solo. I was like, man, that sounds like. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't saying who it sounded like, but I was thinking this borderline's um, uh, moronic and cool. Right, yeah, right. because there's a, there's an art to milking those three notes like he was. So I was sitting there thinking it's really not that bad. Yeah, one more clip. This is going to be the loudest clean guitar tone that you've ever heard from a live. If you know, you know the song, there's a clean guitar for about four or six bars or something in the first verse. So if you listen to the level between the uh, distorted guitar and the clean guitar here. You come in with a clean guitar here. This is the clean part, but it's like twice the. But you'll hear it reduce here. Well, I think some of those '90 records were bad about that. When they hit the distortion pedal, it brought it down some. Yeah, yeah. Well, I. So you got to tell more of that story about that. So that's okay. So obviously, the band was not known as they were after the but if they're in wisconsin it has to be a butch big thing right so this is what happened was they were in madison doing the demos for the nevermind record and they were just going to play a couple shows to get some gas money to get back to seattle this happened to be one of those shows it was a sunday night and uh i think if we uh i can fast forward this clip so this is them ending the song and you can hear the golf clap this is in this that is, bar. Yeah, this is the end bar. Of it. Wow, that's pretty cool. Pretty crazy, right? So that that was the end of the show. There was twenty or thirty people there on a Sunday night. I have to say, I love Dave Grohl's snare sound. Oh yeah, <laughs> it just it, yeah. there was no mic on that. Uh, snare. Yeah, that, uh, oh, it, just, it just sounds so good. I've got a good Butch Vig story. Butch is a great guy. Just an interesting note: his band Garbage has zero live microphones on the stage whatsoever, except for uh, Shirley's uh, vocal mic is the the only thing. But anyway, these guys were they were doing the demos for that record, and they were just playing a couple gigs to get home and. I think the the club owner actually stiffed him on the money at the end of the night too. They they were guaranteed like three hundred, and he gave him a hundred bucks, not knowing they were about to change rock and roll. Buddy, you guys, you're not any good, you know that kind of thing. And it just warms my heart that Mr. Magic happened to save that recording, and he's got others too that are just gold. Pearl Jam from that same club, and Matthew Sweet, and well, they did like reissues. They he could hook them up with some stuff. Interestingly enough, he this one concert is been sought after by the Nirvana fan club for some reason. It's like the only bootleg show that they know exists, but they have nobody has a copy of it. So my buddy Mr. Magic, which is why I'm not letting his name out, has has just taken a hard stand and he says, "No, that's mine." Oh, surely he <laughs> he everybody has their price. Well, they haven't met his yet. Well, <laughs> the point of it is we all have to start somewhere and who knows what humble beginnings make of people, you know. Like so you did said, you have any, when you saw them, did you think they had the it factor? No, because they were among a ton of other bands that were coming out of Minneapolis on Amphetamine Reptile, like the Cows and the Dwarves and the Melvins. Yeah. And, you know, they all kind of had that sound at that time. Sure. Helmet was different. 
sounding back then and Clutch and some other bands. So it was really hard to stand out amongst that yeah. that group of people. I didn't find anything. Actually, I had taken more of an attraction to Pearl Jam at the time yeah. than I did to, to Nirvana. And that was, you know, I was shunned because of that to being the commercial guy. But, yeah, you know, it, it just happens. We, we all have to start somewhere. And you played a talent show. John did a recording at his house. And I ended up somehow being the house guy for a Nirvana show. and That's really awesome. We're still here 30 years from now. So yeah, yeah. I just wanted to thank you guys for, uh, for helping make this happen and being on the first show. Much fun. Much fun. I want to hear that story you had, though, real quick. Let's hear the Butch Vig story. We were um, in London. You know, every city has their rock and roll hotels, but the Kensington Hilton was a rock and roll hotel. I was there. We hung out with guys from the Verb that, just ha- Verb that happened to be there. Nobody had heard the, the Garbage album yet, and it was Garbage's first concert was in London. I can't remember where it was, but they were staying. Our manager and Dame and I were going to go see Garbage. The hype around these, this band was humongous because it was Butch Vig's first band. Right. Um, we'd recorded at Triclops. I'd heard all the Butch Vig stories from Jeff Tomei because they did Siamese Dream there. So, you know, he was kind of an iconic guy for us in the 90s. Find out we're staying at the same hotel as them, but I didn't know... I see Shirley Manson. She's in line ahead of me at the front desk to do whatever we ask for. You know, can I get a toothbrush or whatever? I thought she was like a groupie. And I kind of was, <laughs> she caught me like looking at her and gave me just this really dirty look. We end up, we're standing out in line for the show waiting for, and everybody's talking about what's it going to be like? It's going to be as good as Nirvana. What's it going to be like? Because nobody heard it. Right. Right. We went in there and saw garbage. Like you said, there was the only mic on stage was was her mic because they had all the samplers. And, I'm sure it sounded and, and, amazing. And loops and oh, it was inc- it was absolutely blew my freaking mind. And then later that night, our band was hanging out. Van Halen's stage manager is a Brit guy, so he we all had our reunion and we're drinking in the hotel bar, and they had a lounge piano guy that was every bit as lounge as you would think. <laughs> and he took a break, so I went over. <laughs> you interjected I went yourself. Over, I interjected myself to the piano, and because Timothy, our, my guitar tech, rest in peace, he said, "I dare you to go play Love Boat." So I went and played Love Boat theme on the piano, and went back. And this guy came over and said, "Butch Vig wants to talk to you. He loves your Love Boat. Ah, 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 he loves your Love Boat." And I went over and talked to him and the other two guys, the because you know, it's the three guys that were they're all producers, and Shirley. And, you know, had drinks with them for, you know, at least an hour hanging out. I think maybe at one point they might have wanted me to go away, but I might not have realized it. <laughs> yeah. Who is this guy? <laughs> he loves your love boat. But you really likes your love boat. I mean, how do you do It's got to be presented in the right way. Man. It was like I couldn't tell. I was sober enough to know that either it was complete irony or complete lack of irony, but either way was ironic. But he was just very serious. like... But Butch Vig would like to talk to you because he loved your your love boat. Well, <laughs> does anybody like your love boat, John? No, no, no. No one loves my love boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, we'll all have a lot more stories to tell about strange encounters and, and meeting people on the road and in weird places and different studios. I I, I have a Jacob Dylan story. Oh yeah, that I'll have to tell you sometime. 
Tell it. Ah, it's it, we'll save it for another okay. time. There's so many others that need to be said, and I think that we, you know, we haven't even touched not even two or three questions that I had pre-made for this interview. So, yeah. so I think we had. But Dave, thank you for coming on. And hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fun. It was fun to just sit and talk about normal stuff that people in our business do. The kids going on gigs, different kinds of uh, situations that we've all been in and have had to deal with. And uh, hopefully people want to hear some more fun stories going forward. John, thanks for coming down and making this happen with us and uh totally totally thanks for having me yeah hopefully you'll join us uh for the next few that we do otherwise i'll have to redo all the intros <laughs> new hoser to hose hose the show hose. right <laughs> two new hosers for the show i mean it's been a great time i want to thank you guys for your time and sitting down and just talking about a bunch of nonsense that we would talk to uh each other about backstage anyway thanks yeah man <laughs> all right We're out. See you next month. See you, buddy. This has been Soft Pass. Take part in the conversation on Facebook. Search Soft Pass Podcast. Soft Pass thanks Blue Microphones. Visit them at bluedesigns.com. Theme music by the Sam Yanis Band. Join us again next episode for more behind-the-scenes stories and experiences of working professionals in the music industry.